Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we begin a brand new series called Jesus and His People. So let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 15 to 17 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. We've all been to a wedding and heard the pastor say, I pronounce you husband and wife. And then immediately after that, at least if it's been a you know a traditional wedding, those words were followed by, therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. And perhaps you also remember the words often spoken during the vows, until death do us part. So the meaning's clear, right? Marriage is an unbreakable bond in this life. Those bonds must not be broken, and the fidelity that those bonds demand, that is the demand of sexual faithfulness, also that must never be broken. From the moment those vows are made to the last breath we breathe, those bonds were to remain intact. But of course, I'm not surprising anyone when I say that's the ideal. You know, in North America today, the rate of divorce stands around 38%, meaning that over one-third of all marriages will not be for life, those bonds will be broken. And furthermore, the reality is that fewer than half of adults in North America today are married. And as we know, a great many live in common law relationships. That is, a great many have given up on the ideal of until death do us part. That means a great many have given up on the ideal of a lifelong union. And that's to say a great many people just don't think that human beings are capable of making a commitment when they're young and then holding on to that commitment for better or for worse. You know, part of the reasoning for the present way of thinking goes like this. I don't know how I will change and grow as I get older. What suited my needs and wants and desires when I'm young may be different when I'm older. How do we know that the two of us won't so change that when we get older, this marriage isn't going to work anymore. Of course, all of that is built on a very interesting premise, and the premise is unbridled selfishness. That is, the older I get, the more I'm going to want what I want for myself. That is, not the older that I get, the more I'm going to look for ways of giving myself to you, even if it means sacrifice. Now, I'm beginning a new series in which we're going to study John 15 to 17, and you might wonder why I'm using the new and evolving view of marriage as a means of introducing this series. So, let me explain. John 15 to 17 is about the eternal union of Jesus to his followers. Jesus will speak about abiding in him, or as some translations put it, remaining in him. Jesus will tell his disciples, abide in my love or remain in my love. He'll say that the union between himself and his followers is so close that they will treat us, his followers, in the exact same way as they have treated him. He'll promise that the Holy Spirit, who comes after his crucifixion, then resurrection, and then after his ascension, will constantly be with them so that they will sense his presence as an advantage better than if he had not gone away. He says they will overcome the world and remain in him. And finally, when we come to chapter 17, we'll hear Jesus pray that not one of his followers will ever be lost. He will eternally hold on to his. So John 15 to 17 gives us a teaching intended to reassure us, and by that I mean us believers, that the bond we now enjoy between ourselves and Jesus will never be broken. It's not just an ideal. It's a reality we can depend on. Jesus and his people remain united. 
And this one won't be until death do us part. Rather, this one will never be broken, certainly not by death. And Paul says it that way in Romans 8, 38 to 39, when he says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that's a statement. I am sure there will never be a divorce between myself and Jesus. Indeed, death can't end this relationship, neither can life. And by that, I mean the various unforeseen things that happen in this life. There'll be plenty of unforeseen surprises in this life, but none of those unforeseen events will separate Jesus and his people. Demons can't, nor can any spiritual reality, oppression, or spiritual warfare that I face. Nothing can separate me from Jesus. Indeed, there's nothing in the entire created order that can separate me. It has to include things like the temptations that I face, the sins that I commit, the tragedies that I experience, the persecutions I undergo, the painful and debilitating illnesses that I might encounter. All of these events might change me and change my outlook on life. Life might delight, or it might sadly bring me to the gates of despair, but it can't separate me from Christ. Jesus and his people are in an eternal union. Perhaps down the road, my experiences are such, or there may be biological changes in me that cause me to encounter depression. You know, I recently read a scholarly article in a magazine in which the author said that our thoughts and feelings and behaviors are the result of an interaction between biological factors and environmental factors. Well, you know, there's nothing new there, but the article was all about the degree to which environment and biology shape us. But that got me thinking. To a large degree, I controlled none of that. How am I to control my biological changes? What if, you know, I'm in an accident and I suffer brain injury and my personality is dramatically altered? What if I take a prescribed medication and the side effects permanently alter me? And what I mean is this, to some degree, I can't control what I am becoming. And that might concern me. Perhaps I'll no longer find Jesus to be my joy and delight. I once heard a dear and faithful pastor in his old age suffer from Alzheimer's disease, and suddenly he started using profanity and the vilest language imaginable. You know, one person said, ah, well, that's probably because it was in there from the beginning. That's who he was. And I said, ah, that's in all of us. And this man was godly, and he's now mentally ill. See, but what if that happens to me? Am I still then one of Jesus' people? See, some of you might remember that old hymn, O Sacred Head Now Wounded. Well, the last verse of that hymn ends as follows. It says, O make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love for thee. See, that's the prayer. See, I don't want to go through something that causes me to outlive my love for Jesus. I don't want to be consumed with a temptation that so overwhelms me that I go in a direction that Christ forsakes me. In short, I don't want to become what became of an earlier Christian by the name of Demas. Does that name ring a bell? You know, if it doesn't, let me read to you a little line that Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10. He said, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. See, that's to say the ministry that Paul was carrying out was so difficult that Demas was simply crying out for relief from these sacrifices that were demanded of him. And then came that moment when he said he'd had enough. 
Paul says inside of Demas lay something he had never resolved. He was in love with this present world. Paul doesn't mention what kind of love this involved. I mean, was it sexual pleasure? Was it having the kind of job that paid sufficiently to afford some of those pleasures that he had set his heart on a number of years ago? Were there worldly expectations of reward that he was counting on that if he stayed in service to Christ would never be realized in this life? Is that what he saw as the years of ministry passed? And did the pressure of those desires simply boil over after a while? I mean, did he say to himself, look, I I don't want to forego certain opportunities. I mean, perhaps his dream job came up and he thought, if I don't grab this now, I'm never going to have another chance at this. Perhaps he was just in love with a hedonistic lifestyle. See, the point is we don't know, but if we allow ourselves to imagine all the things that might be behind that statement, Demas deserted me and the ministry of the gospel because he was in love with this present world. Well, if we allow ourselves to imagine what caused that, we might wonder about ourselves. See, from my perspective, I know that I've not killed my love for all worldly pleasure. And just to be clear, lest I misunderstood here, There is no deep, dark secret in my life that if were known would cancel me out of ministry. I have no secret mistress. I have been faithful to my wife all my life. I've not stolen that which doesn't belong to me. That's not what I mean when I say that I have not killed my love for all worldly pleasure. Indeed, when I say that, I don't know if I have a certain worldly pleasure in mind. I mean, perhaps there's within me a secret love for some leisure or luxury in life that might yet cut into my devotion to Christ. Perhaps I've nurtured a hurt that was imposed on me and given the right circumstances, I would seek the pleasure of revenge. See, I don't know, but the temptations that are faced are many. I remember a conversation I had with an elderly believer. He told me he thought that the temptations he faced as a young man would one day subside, and he said they did, but they were replaced by equally vicious temptations as he got older. He said the fight didn't end. He was fighting for holiness every day of his life. I've said this about men. The great fight of younger men is to resist lust and illicit sexual fulfillment. The great fight of older men is to resist the love of power, expressing dominance over others and triumphing over them. The battlefield rages. Well, if that's the case, how can I remain in Jesus? How can the relationship between Jesus and his people remain secure? Since 1957, Back to the Bible Canada has provided excellent and trustworthy Bible teaching for Canadians. These efforts have helped transform the lives of thousands of Canadians from coast to coast to coast. You know, whatever stage of life you're in, you've probably considered the impact you want to leave on your family, on your community, or in the world. Providing sustainable support to the Back to the Bible Canada ministry is one key way you can have an impact on the lives of thousands. We have a goal of adding 331 new monthly givers to our new monthly partner program, the 1119 Fellowship. Won't you help us reach that goal and ensure the message of God's Word continues to be available and its message continues to transform lives? To learn more about the program, the benefits of joining, and to become a member, visit backtothebible.ca fellowship. I'm reminded of an old painting I believe comes from somewhere in the 8600s. It's called The Ladder of Ascent. 
depict saints climbing up a ladder to heaven. And some are on the early rungs and some are on the later rungs. And on the top of the ladder, some are taking that final step and are stepping into glory. But all along the ladder, there are depictions of dark demons who have bows and arrows, and attached to the arrows are long lines or ropes. And as the arrows enter into people climbing the ladder, the demons then can pull on the ropes, and those climbing on the ladder fall off to eternal ruin. I know what some of you are thinking. Well, that's the Middle Ages for you, full of the terrors of demons and of hell, and that Christians could never find their security in Christ. Well, that might be true. The Middle Ages did lose sight of Paul's victorious cry that death or life or demons, nothing could separate him from Christ. But I also know that in Matthew 13, Jesus does tell the story of a sower who goes out to sow. The good seed falls on four different kinds of soil. Indeed, in the case of two kinds of soil, initially, the seed seems to take root. It germinates and seems to be growing until it dies. Some couldn't remain faithful when persecution arose, and others, even though at one time they seemed to have been followers of Jesus, but then came the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, and they fell away, said Jesus. 1 Timothy 4, 1-2. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That's a mouthful, but it does tell us the truth. Some will depart from the faith, and if they do, it is necessary for all of us to ask the most important question any believer in Jesus can ask. Is it possible for me to get a divorce from Jesus? That's why John 15 to 17 is so important. This section begins by having Jesus tell us he's the vine, we're the branches, and then ends with Jesus praying fervently for his people. He says he's guarded them so that not one of them would be lost, that is, of course, except Judas. I remember the first time I experienced a believer, a man who had become a very close friend, fall from the faith. He has never come back. You know, it began with an adulterous affair, and then it ended with him leaving his wife and children and also leaving Jesus. And the Bible never sugarcoats apostasy. Listen to 2 Peter 2, 20 to 22. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. A dog returns to its own vomit, And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. I hope you noticed the statement. In the final day of judgment, the person who had never had a knowledge of Jesus will be better off than the person who pretended to know him and follow him and then fell away. I think it's fair to say there is no greater sin than the sin of apostasy. Think about the horrifying warning in Hebrews 6, 4-6. For it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Those are horrifying words indeed. See, once the apostate falls away, it's impossible to restore him or her. A hardness enters into that person, they're eternally lost. 
And I think it needs to be said here that the apostate that's being described is the person who has a full knowledge of the Word of God. They've been enlightened, says Hebrews. It must mean they've fully understood the faith. They've drunk deeply of the truths of Scripture. They've understood them. They've agreed with them. They've stated they're going to submit to them. They say they fully believe, and then they fall away. I say this here so that we don't assume that, you know, an adolescent who walks away from his or her faith for some time is what's being described. But as I think about the description in Hebrews, I do think of one well-known pastor, I did know him, who was very well-versed in both Scripture and in the deep truths of our faith, and then he left his wife and simultaneously announced he was no longer a Christian and he no longer believed. I don't expect him back ever, eternally. Now then, since this is the case, we need to hear a very strong warning from Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care. Be careful. Watch out. Guard your steps. There's a great danger here, and if that danger befalls you, how horrifying is your condition? I don't think we talk about this danger enough. But let's get back to John 15-17. to See, the context of that section of Scripture is of great importance. The Gospel of John uniquely describes to us what Jesus said while he was meeting with the disciples in the upper room. You remember that this was the night just before Jesus would be betrayed by the great apostate of all times, Judas Iscariot. The other Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, describe how after Judas left the others, Jesus shared the Passover meal with them, laying down the foundation for the Lord's Supper. Later on, after the meal, they were to go to the Mount of Olives, where Judas would betray him with a kiss. But before the Mount of Olives, and after they'd shared the Passover, Jesus spent a great deal of time talking with the eleven, preparing them for what was to come. Jesus told them that he was going to leave them, and that he was going to the Father. caused a panic. Thomas says he doesn't know where he's going, so how can he know the way to come to him? And Jesus responds by saying that that he is the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father but through him. And then Philip interjects and says that Jesus should show them the Father. And Jesus responds by saying that he is in the Father and the Father is in him. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. See, at this point, everything seems confusing to the disciples. But one thing did stay in their minds. Jesus was going away. He's going to leave them. What then was to become of them? If one of their number has already fallen away or had already apostatized, what about the rest? See, the other three gospel writers tell us that as they were on their way to the Mount of Olives, Jesus told Peter that before the rooster crows announcing the morning light, Peter will already have denied Jesus three times. Wow, it seems like they're falling like flies now. And so the entire evening was one that was filled with uncertainty and even fear. But Jesus had told them not to be afraid. Indeed, he told them not to be troubled. They were to trust in God. They were also to trust in him. Indeed, he was going away to prepare a place for them in the Father's kingdom. Then he promised them he would come back for them. He would not forget them so that where he was, they also would be for all eternity. He added, if it weren't that way, I would never have told you these things. Don't let your hearts be troubled, neither be afraid. That's what he told them. And if that wasn't enough, he added, while he was gone, he wouldn't leave them as orphans. He'd send them the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would help them to remember everything he had said to them while he was with them. 
You know, I pointed out back when we studied John 12 to 14 that that's the promise that brought us the New Testament. The Holy Spirit oversaw that when the apostles wrote out the story of Jesus, as well as the implications of the life of Jesus, that this task was accomplished without a single error. The Holy Spirit did what Jesus promised. They wouldn't forget a single thing, neither would they misrepresent a single thing. And then Jesus added something else. He said, look, I've taken care of everything. You don't need to be afraid. And with that comes our three chapters, John 15 to 17. What do we expect to encounter in these three chapters? Well, these three chapters answer our questions about how to avoid the dangers of apostasy, come what may. Will they provide us with the security of knowing that we can remain in Christ and Christ will remain in us? That the situation between us and Jesus is until death and then into eternity. When others have failed, how can we remain secure? Yeah, these chapters are about far more than simply finding out how it can be that Jesus and his people are forever bound to each other. We'll encounter more than that, but we will continually return to our theme. You can know that your union with Christ is an insoluble union. It will never be broken. It won't end in a divorce between you and Jesus. So join me in finding out how. Even if others have fallen, find out how you can know that you never will. Jesus and his people forever joined. It's a marvelous truth, and we must find out how. Thanks so much, John. You know, I think you'd agree that the topic of apostasy is not something of regular conversation. So I'm asking, should we not do a better job discussing perhaps the dangers and warnings regarding apostasy? Yes, Ben, we really should. I mean, apostasy has been a problem uh, for the length of the Christian faith, uh, but it becomes a greater problem when the gospel is not properly understood, uh, when the demands of the gospel are not internalized, um, and when people aren't concerned about what would happen to us should we apostatize. So uh, we should give very stern and severe warnings. This is a, a grave thing. It would be better never to have believed on Jesus than to believe on him and then turn away from that truth. Uh, that's the one thing that we should never have happened to us. So warn and encourage and teach people the truth. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus and His People, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. I Will Tell. This is a series where Dr. Newfeld focuses on the theme verse and a command found in Psalm 78, verse 4. In it, we're compelled by these words, I will not hide the great deeds of the Lord, which he has done in the past from the next generation. This popular series provides you the tools and incentive to share the gospel. It will help inspire you rather than guilt you into action. It reminds us that we each bear responsibility to intentionally share the truths of the gospel, the God of the Bible, his deeds, and his provision for all those that believe. This month, we're excited to offer this entire series on CD for anyone who would ask. Our gift to encourage and inspire. Ask for a copy of I Will Tell for yourself or even pass it on to a friend. 
All you need to do is visit backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.